Hello. Thank you for coming. Um, I'm Gavin Freegard, Programme Director here at the Institute for Government, and I'm delighted to welcome you to tonight's event. Are there too many generalists in the civil service? A slightly provocative title, uh, but one that we hope will generate an important and timely debate about the balance between generalists and specialists in government and the skills that the civil service needs at its disposal. Some housekeeping before we go any further. Tonight's event is on the record. We're live streaming, so hello to everybody watching us online. And we'll be live tweeting from at IFG events on the hashtag hashtag IFG civil service. Uh, if you're in the room, you can get onto our Wi-Fi using the details at the top there. It's the IFG guest network, username IFG, and password is visitor. So tonight's discussion is inspired by this new book, Bluffocracy by James and Andrew, who I'll introduce shortly. It's available from all good bookshops, probably some mediocre ones as well, and you'll be able to get hold of it after tonight's event too. Now, I'll let the authors tell you all about it shortly, but its general premise is this. Britain is run by bluffers. Generalists who know a little bit about everything and an awful lot about nothing. I think it means that their answer to the question are there too many generalists in the civil service, <laughs> is yes. And in fact, the question that they were asking me was, are there too many generalists in tonight's audience? <laughs> so shall we have a show of hands? How many of you would consider yourselves generalists? Good luck. <laughs> uh, so tonight's discussion, as I said, is supposed to be a little bit provocative, but it gets at some really important issues about the skills the civil service has. This is something we've written a lot about here at the Institute for Government. It's something that John Manzoni, the chief executive of the civil service, was talking about on this stage just a few months ago as he pursues the functional agenda, professionalising those things across Whitehall that are not specific to particular departments. And it's something that's on everybody's minds as we see more digital public services, as we see government pursuing big infrastructure projects, and of course, as we head towards Brexit. But before I introduce our excellent panel, I just want to start with one passage from the book. Faced with the prospect of taking part in a public panel discussion, needing to give a 10-minute speech followed by discussion, there are two types of people in British public life. One sort will immediately jump into research mode, looking at the title of the panel, its intended audience, the other speakers and their interests, before writing a rough draft of their speech and noting a few key figures that might be useful as answers to questions. <laughs> The other sort might scribble down ten words as notes in the back of the cab on the way to the event. I'm not sure that... <laughs> Excellent. Well, to turn to our panel then, first up will be James Ball, one of the authors of this book. James is a Pulitzer Prize and British Journalism Award-winning journalist who's written for outlets including, including BuzzFeed, The Guardian and The Washington Post. As well as Bluffocracy... He's written books about WikiLeaks, about post-truth, and a forthcoming book which answers all the questions posed by pop songs. He'll be followed by his co-author, Andrew Greenway. Andrew is a former civil servant who worked in five different departments before entering the senior civil service at the age of just 27. He's now a partner at Public Digital, who advise governments and companies all over the world about digital transformation, and he's also written about Whitehall for outlets including The New Statesman, The Guardian and Civil Service World. They'll talk for about 10 to 15 minutes on the argument of the book. We'll then have a response from my wonderful colleague, Emma Norris, Programme Director here at the Institute for Government. Uh, Emma's got an extensive career in public policy and here at the Institute she's led a lot of our work on policy making and implementation, on preparing ministers for government and she's currently leading a project on churn and turnover in the civil service, which I have a feeling might come up at some point later. She'll speak for about five minutes in response, we'll then have a quick discussion on the panel and then we'll throw the questions out to you, the audience. We'll be wrapping up at about 7pm. Please do come and join us for drinks, canapes and buying the book afterwards before you all dash off to watch Bake Off. So, without further ado, James. So, hi, thank you very much for coming everyone. Um, let me just say before I get into the book that 
I'm a journalist, so anything I've done on this is from sources, whereas it's Andrew who betrayed the civil service, first by joining the private sector and then by bad-mouthing you all in a book. So please direct any hostility to him. Um, I would just like to stress that. Um, in terms of sort of setting out the book, we, I mean, we firstly, we tried to keep it quite short. There is a lot that we actually could say on this topic because... We both know it quite well because we both think it describes our own careers and, frankly, our own approaches as well as some systemic problems. And essentially, our issue is not trying to suggest that people are thick or that they are incompetent or that they are winging it, although some people are, but rather that we have this sort of corrosive culture sort of stemming all the way back to the idea of the uh, gentleman amateur that frankly, if you're clever enough and you can present well enough, uh, you can transfer that and apply it to anything. And I think that's a battle plan that doesn't survive contact with the enemy. Um, you know, I think we've sort of learned what happens if you put uh, clever people with no eye on detail in charge of complex projects when you look at, say, Brexit. Um, whatever your view on it, it's difficult to say it's being handled swimmingly. Um, and so we sort of tried to focus in on sort of three bits of public life to try and say how each of those in turn doesn't really work as intended to either question decision-making effectively or to sort of actually draw in and use expertise. Now, one thing to say for all of it is journalism has its specialists, the civil service has its specialists, and believe it or not, there are some MPs who know what they're talking about on certain fields. Um, it's not that we're saying it lacks, it's that we're saying they're not usually the skills that rise, and they're not usually the skills that are most valued. Um, you will do a lot better, um, as someone we quote in the book says, if you're the person who writes a clever memo to get someone out of a crisis in the civil service, than you will do by running a, a team so well that there's never one in the first place. Um, so it tends to be that side of it. So in politics, the sort of the very short version of this, it's a short book, you can read it in 90 minutes, please do. Um, in politics, the short version is that if you, are, if you have only lived in this country and only really looked at its political system, it seems completely rational that someone runs the health service one day, the defence service the next, is a backbencher for a few weeks after that, and then comes back and is running your internet strategy. Um, this is not remotely rational in most other countries, including many other parliamentary democracies. Um, you may not look at the US government as it is right now and be reassured that it's uh, run by experts or people who know what they're talking about, but at least in business as usual there, your, foreign sec you know, your Secretary of State will quite likely be someone with extensive foreign policy experience. Your Treasury Secretary will be someone who knows finance quite well and has quite possibly run a, a federal bank or a state, you know, a state uh, bank. You kind of have that ability for expertise. When you look at our government in practice, you have essentially 20 cabinet posts filled by MPs. There is a pool of just, under, just over 300 MPs to pull that from. So the 20 most senior ministerial roles in the public sector have 15 candidates each, at best. This is no sane way to run a country. So the logic behind that becomes, well, the civil service is where the expertise are, is where the support is, is where the knowledge is, except incentive-wise, and exacerbated by the financial crisis, of course, and the pay freezes, if you are ambitious, you want to move around. That's always the best way to happen anyway, and the civil service has always had a tension between managerialism and essentially serving a minister. And so often the roles in which you advance are the ones that sort of reward you for not getting to know the mechanics of one area too well, but rather of gaming through the civil service. And one of my issues from the outside with this was seeing that, you know, quite often, built into the fast stream was the idea of moving often. Um, there's very little sort of career development and career structure designed to try and keep you in a department. And if we look at that, the one institution in Britain that should have the institutional memory, the expertise, the here's how this was handled last time, the 
oh, they thought this might happen when they made the policy. Here's how they thought they'd tackle it if it came up. It doesn't. Like, realistically, the civil service moves so fast. It doesn't have the institutional memory. And often, the expertise doesn't make it to the minister. And then you have the journalism that's supposed to call it to account. And as a career journalist who now has to work as a freelance, let me say, every newspaper is brilliant at this, all flawless, and they should all keep hiring me. <laughs> We've actually built the structure of political journalism to make sure that no one can ask a hard question. And it's because we have the lobby. And the lobby has some of Britain's cleverest and best and most hardworking journalists in it. It really does. But their expertise becomes solely politics. What will happen in a newsroom, and this is the thing I actually know about, someone will do an investigation. Someone will actually go and meet, say, universal credit recipients or people facing being deported who are citizens or have the right to remain here from Windrush. They then talk to frontline workers off the record and they find all the holes in the system, the bits that don't work, what it's actually there and like. And that journalist will write a story and that will turn into a political crisis. And even when you have a team where the lobby actually gets on well with their newsroom, and bear in mind, lobbies are actually embedded in parliament, in politics. They are quite divorced from the rest of journalism. They will be able to brief that lobby journalist for five minutes tops who might be more interested in the political angle, you know, who's responsible, will you resign anyway? Meaning the questions asked are actually pretty easy. There's no depth and they, instead of becoming how the public hold ministers to account, turn into another way to make sure they never face expert scrutiny. Now, I could talk about select committees, I could talk about all sorts more, but the structures in all of these things, the very way we built it, rewards you, even if you are not by temperament someone who would wing it, someone who would get away on how you talk, on how you sort of present, it trains you to work in that way anyway. And I think that does us real harm. Uh, but now Andrew will sort of say why that makes the civil service specifically bad people. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, one of the things we talk about a lot in the book is uh, the degree Philosophy, Politics and Economics, which James and I are both proud graduates of from Oxford. Can we get another show of hands for PPists in the room, please? Okay. Wow. <laughs> That's fewer than I thought. Good. Um, I'm deeply suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> Rule number one of PPE um, is never to answer any question directly. Um, so while Gavin said that we would probably say yes to that, we wouldn't go for anything that clear or vulgar. Um, so instead what I'm going to do is do the PPE thing, which is to sort of just pull that question apart a little bit. Um, so are individual generalists ruining the civil service? No. I mean, I failed too. Um, and what's interesting about the civil service, it's very hard for individuals to really kind of move the machine in any great direction. Um, is this a new problem? No, not really. One of the things that I found particularly sad about writing quite a lot about the civil service over the last few years is that there are no new stories to write. Everybody's got their 50 years before you. Um, is the civil service an organisation that lacks deep expertise? No, clearly not. James has already touched upon this, but I remember when I was looking on the civil service jobs site when I was still working in Whitehall, um, you know, I'd been in a job for six months, so it was time to look for the next thing. And remembering the kind of the weird and wonderful jobs that you'd find on there, buried away. I mean, the civil service is an organisation that employs bowling alley technicians, employs space lawyers, it employs insect biologists. This is not a place that's without deep expertise in various pockets. And nor is it a place without multidisciplinary teams where those expertise are actually brought together and to work quite effectively. I'd argue they're the exception rather than the rule, and that's one of the problems. But those places do exist, and they exist in parts of the civil service that often really aren't that celebrated. There are great multidisciplinary teams working in DWP, in the UK Hydrographic Office, in DVLA, down in Swansea. They are there. The examples of good practice are there. But... Uh, is the civil service an organisation which is led by an excess of generalists who tend to hunt in packs um, and who over about 150 years have kind of stacked the game in their favour? Yeah, I'd say it probably is. Um, and 
50 years ago, roughly, roughly, Fulton described the senior civil service in particular as a bunch of amateurs. He was slightly more polite than that, but the word amateurs stuck and it wounded. And I think one of the reasons why it wounded is the senior civil service is not a place for amateurs. It's a place for highly professional people. But they're highly professionalised players of a particular game called Whitehall. And actually the path to the top of the civil service is becoming extremely good at playing that particular game rather than really relying on deep policy knowledge or deep experience of a particular operational area. One of the reasons that I ended up leaving Whitehall when I did, and as Gavin said, I got to the first rung of the senior civil service far too early. That in itself should worry you, um, quite frankly. But when I got to that position, I felt I was bumping into people who, broadly speaking, looked a bit like me, sounded a bit like me, and thought a bit like me. And firstly, that was quite boring, but secondly, it felt quite dangerous. And that did feel like an important transition point for me, moving to the senior civil service, in that prior to that, I'd spent a lot of time working in different parts of government, working in teams where I was surrounded by, I was very lucky, I worked in some excellent teams, I was surrounded by individuals that could teach me something, stuff that I didn't know from a skills base that I didn't have. And when I moved into the senior civil service, my peers and my colleagues, who were equally brilliant and equally smart, but what they could really teach me was how to become a better senior civil servant. And that's a very different set of skills. Why is that bad? Um, well, James has touched on this a bit in the context of Brexit. One of the things that's been fascinating in terms of the reaction to this book is lots of people have said to us, but we thought the civil service was the bit that knew. We knew that the politicians were just making it up as they went along, and we knew these kind of rudderless journalists had no idea, but we were pretty sure the civil service had our back. And I think that's partly because the senior leadership of the civil service is probably the best of those disciplines at appearing to know what they're talking about. And that's partly because they're extremely skilled at doing it and partly because there's a large machine behind them that helps them to do that, providing them with lines to take. I'll come back to that. So I think it breeds a certain kind of complacency, um, which I find quite worrying, particularly with a kind of connected problem, which I, I fear that there's a lot of exceptionally powerful and precious knowledge that's walking out the door of the civil service. I've spoken to quite a few people who have deep knowledge and who feel it's not necessarily valued within the institution, or at least not as much as it should be, not least because there is very few paths to the top, and in terms of the pay restraint, it's very difficult for us as an expert to be rewarded within those civil service structures at the moment. Knowledge management, which could have been the kind of the stopgap, making sure we're capturing that knowledge somewhere within the institution and keeping it, what we used to call filing. We don't, we don't call it filing anymore, we call it knowledge and information management. And unfortunately, knowledge and information management is a bit of a joke. It is not well loved in Whitehall, and that's a problem. Um, some people have taken the sort of central point of our thesis of blockocracy to kind of say this is about the fight back for experts. Um, and that's part of the story, but it's not really about expertise, actually. It's more about diversity and a kind of bringing together a broad balance of skills. And more specifically, it's about having a set of national institutions that are more reflective of the country that they serve. And I mean that not in terms purely of how they look, although that's important, and I think actually the civil service should take some credit over the last few years for making some movement in that direction that's good. But where I think it's still falling behind is it hasn't really increased the diversity, particularly at those levels, in terms of how they think. There is still a very kind of similar kind of mindset operating at the top of the civil service. And... Diversity is kind of often touched upon as a nice-to-have. It's not a nice-to-have, particularly in the case of these kinds of institutions. It's democratic necessity, frankly, um, and it's a lot more than skin deep. Uh, I have a rule these days. Um, I won't join uh, any board, not that people regularly ask me to go on boards, but I won't join any board where I don't increase the diversity of it by going on it which, as a male, white, Oxbridge person, means that there aren't that many boards that I can go on with a clear conscience. <laughs> but I think that's probably a good thing that I should avoid them, to be honest. Um, so what do we do about it? Very briefly, I mean, you can come in at this from the inside or the outside. From the inside, uh, James has already kind of touched upon this. The incentives on senior civil servants are pushing them in this particular direction. It is hard to not be a generalist senior civil servant and succeed within Whitehall. So there's a couple of ways of doing that. You can change some of the things that are going on the inside, or you can apply some pressure from the outside. And James mentioned journalists are struggling to ask good, piercing questions, partly because of the way journalism has been set up around this bubble. But select committees, too, are finding it difficult. I'd quite like to see select committees being able to ask some very different, difficult questions of people who sit in front of them. Questions like, can you draw the technical architecture that sits behind your digital service, please? I can't see many permanent secretaries feeling comfortable with that question, 
nor many briefing notes that would help them through it. And if we can have the people who are behind the lines to take in the room being held accountable for some of those decisions, or a more qualified set of leaders who are qualified to answer those difficult questions, I think we get a different type of conversation. First, and finally actually, most importantly, we should have fewer people who are like me and him running departments. Okay, so <clears throat> I'm going to start by saying that I think in some ways we're being a bit too hard on generalism tonight because to me generalism isn't just about bluffing. Generalists do have a specific skill set that not everybody and indeed not all specialists have. Now partly if you're talking about policy making as a specialism that relates to things like use of evidence, analysis, cost-benefit analysis but it's also about things like how you work effectively with ministers, how to work across departments with ALBs, how to work with the Treasury. In essence, it's about the art of government. And if you care about getting things done in Whitehall, whether that's crafting a really effective policy or delivering a major project, having that type of skill set at your fingertips is necessary. And specialists themselves actually agree on this whether it's Naomi Eisenstadt, the architect of Shawstart, or Jeremy Beaton, um, the major project specialist that was brought in to help government deliver the Olympics. Here at the Institute, we hear time and time again from people like Naomi and Jeremy that they could only get their work done by relying on the help of generalists. So I think you need a balance between the two. Second, we've got a political system that requires a certain amount of generalism for our government to work whether as a result of political priorities changing, perhaps as a result of an election or a reshuffle, or because there's an unforeseen crisis, sometimes civil servants have to be rapidly redeployed. We can't just have experts. We need people who are flexible enough to work to different priorities as government requires it. Um, and finally, I think it's also worth noting that Whitehall isn't nearly as generalist as it used to be. Um, what's known as the functional agenda, the attempts to professionalise key parts of Whitehall, like HR, like finance, means that the days of having a generalist in the role of finance director in a department are pretty much over. So I think you know, the winds are shifting in some ways. So I think it's worth acknowledging that generalism plays a really important role. And actually, when we talk about generalism, we're talking about a specific skill set um, a lot of the time. But having said all that, I do think that there are a number of really important ways that generalism isn't working at the moment. And I think the first of these is the most important. At the moment, generalism means constant churn and turnover amongst civil servants. People are moving jobs around every 18 months at the moment at junior levels, often exactly as James and Andrew have said, to maximise pay and grade but also because the workforce model encourages this. The fastest way to reach the top is to move quickly. And we only need to look at some of the stats to see just how corrosive this kind of churn is. In Treasury spending teams, um, there's around 90% turnover from one spending round to the next. So the people in departments that are working with those teams in the Treasury aren't ever working with the same person round to round, um, and all of them identify it as a problem. In homelessness policy, a policy that's fast rising up the agenda at the moment, the entire policy team in that space was lost and is now having to be rebuilt. There's got to be a lot of corporate knowledge there that government could really have done with being able to use. Even in the SCS, the average um, tenure at the moment is two years. That's just a tiny bit higher than a football manager. Um, A private sector CEO in the UK stays in place five years. In the US, it's closer to eight, sometimes ten years. So there's a big gap there between the people who are leading um, our departments and what the private sector is doing. And all this churn is really expensive. The cost of hiring somebody new and training them up is estimated to be about six and a half grand per person in professions. And there's no reason to think it's a lot less in the civil service. And that's just training somebody up advertising the job, the basics, it doesn't account for the productivity loss that you get, given that somebody takes a good few years to become effective in a new role. Um, And that kind of churn has also been called out as a big factor in major policy and project failures. So from universal credit to West Coast mainline, turnover in key roles has been identified in all these projects as one of the reasons that things have gone wrong. 
But generalism doesn't have to look like this. I don't think that generalism has to be synonymous with really high levels of turnover and churn. And we could build a workforce model where generalism meant that civil servants stayed with a project for three years or four years rather than a year and a half, the time they need to be really effective and really get a grip on them on what they're doing. We could choose to place more value on seeing things through. That's already starting to happen in some major projects, but it's something we need to see happen more across the civil service. So one problem at the moment is turnover and churn. The second problem, and I entirely agree with James and Andrew on this, is that Whitehall simply doesn't place enough value at the moment on specialist knowledge. We need generalists, but the balance between generalism and specialism at the moment I don't think is quite right. At the top of the civil service, um, it's largely occupied by generalists who have climbed the ladder often, um, who climbed the ladder by moving around. But in any department, there are a set of issues which are always there. I think that you need a certain degree of flexibility, but there's also a certain amount of sameness. I was talking to a former senior official in the Treasury just a couple of days ago, and he was saying, look, you're always going to need people who can do macroeconomics really well in the Treasury. You're always going to need people who can do microeconomics really well in the Treasury. Pensions is going to be a continuous issue. You can pick out the kind of standing agenda for departments that allows you to identify and supply specialist skills in those areas. So you need a balance between the two. And there's no reason that we can't employ policy subject specialists in these areas. And there's no reason why Whitehall can't provide a career model for these specialists that is just as attractive as the career model for generalists. But it's not there at the moment. So generalism definitely isn't ruining the civil service. It's a useful and extremely necessary part of Whitehall. But it is just a part of Whitehall. And Whitehall needs to start placing far greater value on the other parts too. And it needs to improve the way generalism works, moving away from a culture of churn towards a culture of stability and seeing things through. Thank you very much. Those did not feel like they were put together in the back of a cab on the way here, I have to say. Um, we'll throw it out to the audience quite, uh, quite soon, but I just wanted to ask a couple of follow-up questions. And you've sort of touched on what some of the solutions to the problems you've identified might be, are. Um, you describe in the book, James and Andrew, that um, one possible way of solving some of these problems, quote... If history is any guide, a decent-sized war <laughs> is probably the only reliable way of moving the needle. Now, I, I think you've, you've already gone beyond that, but I'd, I'd be interested in what all of you think about, first of all, how you might change some of the rules of the Whitehall game that you've all described. But second, you describe the politics, philosophy and economics degree. Sorry, the philosophy, politics and economics degree. It's important the philosophy goes first, having read the book, um, as a sort of vocational course for the British ruling class. If you could design a different course for people to go through before they came into these sort of country-leading professions, what would you do? I would immediately scrap it. <laughs> so not necessarily PP is a subject of interest in itself. If you could do something, inter if something interdisciplinary combined good bits of political science and modern politics with a good grounding in economics, that would be fantastic. It's just, as it is, you get taught the two entirely separately. And frankly, mainly what you learn is how to argue well with someone in a tutorial, uh, which turns out to be quite good preparation for meetings, but not necessarily good preparation for having anything to say in them. Um, the issue that I have is that people come in with the same skill set. If it's not PPE, it's English, and if it's not English, it's history. You know, try getting maths or science or uh, engineering in Parliament. Parliament has precisely one uh, female engineer at the moment, uh, Chion Wurra. Um, you know, the civil service, I think last I checked, was it 8%? I can't remember the figure from the book, annoyingly, but this, we have the figure in the book of topic breakdown. I think about 3% of journalists, journalists have any kind of science or tech speciality. Uh, if you look at the background of degrees, it's overwhelmingly arts, it's overwhelmingly anything. Uh, it's sort of in that area. And that's not healthy. Because firstly, if I know about anything in journalism, it's dealing with stats, figures and data. He says, having forgotten a figure, you know, good, good sign that the if is your <laughs> warning here. And almost all of it's not intuitive. And the way people look at them and think about them aren't intuitive. You know, there's sort of the very fun uh, allegory from World War II where a statistician was asked to look at uh, 
the planes returning uh, to see where they should be given more armour. And the returning planes had by far the most bullet holes on the wings and the fuselage, and the proposal was to put more armour there. And they did thankfully consult a university mathematician who said, no, you've got it exactly the wrong way around. The planes that come back are the ones that get shot there. If you notice, the ones that get shot in the engines, they don't come back. And so they put the armour there. Now, that's fairly intuitive by statistical standards. If you start to get anything to do with screening and these kind of interventions, whether for cancer or whether for sort of crime or all sorts of other issues that we might want to screen for, as soon as you have people who know the numbers in the senior rooms, the decisions look very, very different. So if anyone tried to create a course for the elite, they've got it wrong, they've missed it. You need lots of different backgrounds, lots of different models of thinking, uh, you know, sort of diversity, not just of background, but that's important. You know, if you want to make fewer mistakes with things like universal credit, have people who grew up in family on benefits in the room, and they will spot a lot of this stuff very, very early. Um, so you need diversity of background, you need diversity of thinking, and you need diversity of expertise. One of the things that's quite interesting about PP as a degree, which is far, un far from unique about it, is that you stand and fall as an individual. Um, there is no collective endeavour as part of PP. There is no sense of working in a team at any point. Um, and I wouldn't scrap it necessarily, but I think one of the things that would be really interesting to do for degrees... PP is far from unique, by the way. I note the other degrees represented on this panel are also intrinsic part of the civil service. But you stay within your discipline. You never have to deliver anything as a team. I would like to see PPists have to produce a project with a computer scientist and a fine artist and build something, for example, would be quite an interesting thing to learn when you're 18 and you know very little. But the individualism thing in terms of looking back on the civil service is in itself quite interesting. I mean, one of the things about being a civil servant is that you deliver almost nothing of value on your own. The value is delivered in teams. But almost all of the kind of the incentives that are put on you through your objectives or through your performance management are almost entirely about individual objectives. Uh, from permanent secretary down, actually. And I would like to see a lot more kind of thought going into how you incentivize and performance manage civil servants about how, what are the collective objectives here and how much do they count? Um, I had a good friend of mine who remains a senior civil servant, so I won't name them, but who was talking quite actively about being considered for her box mark uh, with her uh, director peers collectively, willing to take that risk as a collective team because ultimately she wouldn't have been able to deliver the level of public impact she wanted to on her own. She needed to do that with her peers. I think that's a really interesting model for trying a different kind of multidisciplinary working where you all hang together. Because one of the reasons I think why generalism takes such a strong hold in the upper echelons of the senior civil servants is that you need to be able to do quite a lot of things quite well. That's very, very difficult to do in one single brain. Collectively, with multiple people, it's a lot more possible. But to make that happen, you've got to reward people for doing it. I agree with um, all of those points. In terms of other ways that we could tackle this problem, I mean, I think the issue of promotion and pay has got to be tackled. And the only way that we are going to stop people bouncing from role to role every 18 months is if we give them other opportunities to get pay rises and to get promotions that don't require them to move that often. So that would have to be absolutely top of the list. I think we also have to start valuing specialism and knowledge more highly in Whitehall, as I've said. And I think that really means developing a career path that is as um, uh, competitive, um, as compelling as the path we have for generalists, not just in terms of pay, but also in terms of seniority. Perhaps it would be good for us to see a few more people at permanent secretary level who haven't come through the generalist policy route but have come through one of the more specialist functions. Um, I think the other thing that we shouldn't miss out, actually, is the role of ministers here. Um, one of the concerns that the book raises um, is that by the time... Uh, policy comes home to roost and some of the problems that you might encounter, the people who created it are long gone. Now that might be true for civil servants, but it's certainly true for ministers that the people who are the architects of policies and um, who are announcing the ideas are often long gone by the time um, that policy runs into trouble. And I think 
We could also think about how we hold ministers to account in the longer term as well. For instance, is there something there around calling um, former ministers back to select committees to hold them accountable for the policies that they have come up with? So I don't think we should focus just on civil servants. Part of making this right is thinking about the political angle too. Journalists as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Thank you very much. So we've got a full room, so I'm sure there are lots of questions. Um, Just a reminder, we are on the record, so anything you say will be held against you. Um, If you could just give your name and where you're from, um, if you'd like to very quickly. I'll take three questions at a time. Please wait for the microphone to come round. And um, please do keep your contributions relatively short. So we'll start with... Um, just see how many hands want to go up first of all. Trying to see if I can ask the first question of any any women want to ask the first question. That's excellent. We've got uh, down here in the front. Then we'll go to the two uh, questions over there. So is it me first? Yes. Oh, great. Uh, Vicky Price, uh, now at CBR. I used to be uh, the joint head of the Government Economic Service, so a specialist, non-Oxford educated, but the, the LSE doing proper economics. Uh, the, the, I think the, the, the issue that was just raised about politicians is really important, uh, and also how to treat them in front of, um, how to, to question them, if you like, in front of select committees is very important. Uh, in the end, actually, Amber Rudd fell because she didn't, uh, know of something that was going on in her department. It wasn't exactly a, a, a figure she couldn't remember, a number, but it was that. But others have survived and do, uh, such as uh, the person who said that, uh, who completely uh, sort of changed what the National Audit Office had said about universal credits. I won't mention the name. Uh, the other one who actually, who still is, who's still at her post, uh, another one who said that Turkey was going to join, 80 million people were going to come here after, you know, if we stayed in the EU still in her job as, as running another department. So, and I think, I think it's absolutely right. I was listening to, to Lord Green today from the Immigration Watch, who started off as follows. Uh, this report uh, is rather technical, written by a bunch of economists. So they, uh, the implication being that it was just rubbish. Uh, the moment we actually managed to get uh, politicians to acknowledge what the evidence tells you is really when... Uh, the, the specialists will see their own jobs as worth doing. Thank you very much. And we've got two questions over there. Uh, the gentleman in the white shirt and the gentleman in the blue shirt and the dial chap who's currently reaching for the mic. Whichever. Alan Bailey, ex-Treasury Transport, old generalist, uh, uh, and um, lots of fascinating points, and, and one gets anecdotal at, at my age. But um, I wanted to pick up, I haven't read the book, uh, but the title, uh, I um, agree strongly with the first half, I disagree with the second. The civil service is not about governing, it's about helping ministers to run the government. And Emma at the end mentioned the ministerial angle, and, and the quick change of ministers, which I agree is relevant, as is the far too quick change in civil servants. But uh, my simple point is that the, the senior civil service has to uh, exercise a kind of specialism in the management of policy advice, as I see it. There's the delivery side, which also has to be run from the top of a department, but the essential job is that the minister is responsible for everything the department does, and the permanent secretary, the senior uh, people in the civil service there, have to help him um, make it work as well as possible. Uh, And for that, I go back to, I said I was going to be anecdotal. Uh, Fulton, I was in William Armstrong's office when Fulton came out and thought about preference for relevance and what the six or seven jobs I'd done in my first decade in the civil service uh, had in common and pointed which specialism they, ref- relevance they suggested. And it was being in the private secretary, which I went on with, and that understanding of what ministers need and want is the crucial part for that part of the civil service role. Uh, And um, I I do believe that the kind of um, quick-move career, not as quickly as as has been happening necessarily in a shrinking civil civil service, and always was in terms of crises, uh, but the, the spread of jobs which make it 
possible for people to do that job adequately is uh, the reverse of what you mean by specialism. Thank you. And if you just pass it in front of you. Uh, Rob Adam, I used to work here. Uh, I now work at the Treasury and I've just switched over to the Treasury from the Infrastructure and Projects Authority. So in that switch, I've stayed as a policy advisor, uh, but my policy role has gone from working out detailed technical legal documents relating to private finance to massaging the minister, uh, but all under the banner of policy. And the question I was going to ask is, actually particularly for Emma, in terms of the churn pro problem, but also in terms of generalism, um, are we talking mainly here about policy? So my, my kind of general impression of policy is that it's not a thing. It's a sort of catch-all term which covers communications, project delivery, what would be uh, kind of product development in the private sector. Um, and I feel that actually the term policy probably is one of the damaging things here. The second thing I was going to say is, so this question of the too many generalists in the civil service, uh, I feel like kind of almost missing the point here, which is that in any organisation, to get to the top, you do two things. You either uh, ape the people above you, or you play to the currency of that organisation. So when I worked in private equity, the people at the top almost all spoke and looked exactly the same as in the civil service, uh, and they were, all, they were all massive deal closers. They, they signed big multi-million, multi-billion pound deals. You know, deals is the currency of private equity. In, in the civil service, your currency is keeping the minister in a position, and you try to ape the minister. You know, I feel like we're just describing something that's kind of almost self-explanatory in all organisations. So, two slightly pro provocative questions there. But, uh. Thank you all. Responses? Um, let's, let's jump first. Um, I mean, to Vicky's point, I completely agree. Um, and it sort of stems from, you know, problem with everything in social sciences. Everything is a cause and everything is an effect. And so, who knows how we run in these many cycles. But... Um, evidence for ministers, evidence in British politics is finding something that backs up what you already think. So, you know, I can tell the right honourable gentleman that Professor, what's his name from here, thoroughly agrees with our policy and has 2% of... It's something you find once you've made up your mind. It has nothing to do with uh, sullying your intellect with sort of influencing the decision earlier on. Um, and so, you know, I think we all like to think we're the exception uh, and I certainly wouldn't uh, say that everybody does this equally um, but I've, to be honest I think the difficult, difficulty for the evidence based community in the UK is there's quite good evidence that evidence doesn't change people's mind and we don't listen to that recommendation ourselves so um, I think it's, it's a sort of very worthy but doomed movement because we don't seem to change our tactics we don't respond to evidence that evidence isn't persuasive. Um, so we're right, uh, and our own failure helps prove that. Um, that might be cynical. Um, I am a journalist. Um, on, the, on the other issue, I think there is, you know, again, I'm going to tend to relate things to journalism because it's where I understand it. Um, the lobby is a very specialist job in itself, in a sense. It's just, is it a specialism that benefits the audience? Is it, a is it a specialism that benefits accountability? Is it a sort of specialism that benefits the UK? Probably not. Um, it helps you break the right stories. It helps you get there. There's certainly worthwhile aspects of, of that, just as there are many worthwhile aspects of private office. It's just, just because, you know, having journalists who fully understand the process of how um, bills pass through the Commons and how you can tell whether a vote's likely to come through that evening or not, etc. That's useful information. Sort of the intricate structures of how briefing works and the lobbying works and how comms works actually just makes all of the journalism confusing and makes the readers trust it less. You know, they don't know the difference between a spokesman for the PM and the spokesman for a PM. A lot of the expert audience actually doesn't. And so it just gets completely lost and turns into a barrier. I think some of the specialism of policy, to sort of switch it to the third, is useful, and a lot of it isn't. Um, my impression from the outside of the civil service was policy was whatever the minister's currently interested in, uh, whether that's you know, avoiding a crisis, staying out of trouble, or trying to reform something, and deliveries, all the boring real work. Um, and you know, as someone in the book described to us, you might have 
someone in the Home Office running a team of 600, a budget in the tens of millions, actually, say, running part of the border agency that might then be the person deporting, say, a Windrush person who will have never met the minister, will never meet the minister, and it will be a grade seven somewhere, uh, 10 years younger, on less money, never really run anything, who then has to actually work out the minister's response to it. Um, and so they were saying that dichotomy and the fact that that grade seven will rise and that, that you know, the person running the 600-man team won't is sort of a large problem with the civil service. It might, it does exist to advise ministers and shape what they want, but it does also run about 45% of the country. Um, and it seems to take the second half of that from the outside less seriously than the first. Very briefly, um, on Vicky's point around experts not getting a hearing, uh, I recognise that. Um, where I've seen experts get more of a hearing in government is slight, I'm less cynical than James, I don't think it's doomed, but I do think it's about tactics and where um, economists, other expertise tend to get swallowed in government is they tend to use the same form of communicating with the minister as their policy colleagues, which is the submission and that kind of, they get shoved in an analytical annex somewhere and kind of forgotten about. The experts who tend to have I've seen get a very positive hearing at the political level are those who are quite tactical about how they present their evidence and by breaking the mould of some of the civil service templates, quite frankly, using different forms, um, usually with ministers who are fed up with reading submissions, doing something on a screen with a kind of quite imp impressive chart. Sounds quite facile, but actually can get you quite a hearing in a way that a paper that's immaculately argued won't. So I do think there's a sort of acuteness around tactics that experts can use that they tend not to for very good reasons a lot of the time, but probably could be more cynical about it. Um, to the point around the sort of the private secretary through to permanent secretary, golden drain pipe that still very much exists, I'm kind of brought to mind when uh, Jeremy Hayward sat on this stage a couple of years ago, I think, and explained what his job was. And he had a fantastic pie chart where I think he outlined his eight jobs, which he'd done as a sort of time and motion study on, on what Jeremy gets up to. Um, I suspect he didn't do it himself. Um, I but should also I, say the Institute for Government does not endorse the use of pie charts. Our graphics <laughs> are much better than that. That's, that's a very fair point. But um, one of those jobs clearly was handling and advising the Prime Minister and similarly with Permanent Secretary. That is one of their jobs. But it is one of their jobs. Several other of their jobs are the delivery of major kind of infrastructure and public services and often managing very substantial workforces. But I think that the, the value that they stand and fall on is that ministerial advice to the detriment of their several other jobs, which in itself, and I don't have any answers to this, but it sort of suggests that the breadth of a permanent secretary role, particularly with some of the enormous departments that they look after, is a fundamentally unsustainable one. And it's worth looking at whether these are organisations that are manageable in the sense of being, a, being managed rather than served. I don't have an answer to that. But I do think that what you describe as that kind of path at the top is still very similar now in terms of that sort of experience and skill that's rewarded first. Um, is policy a thing? I wondered that quite a lot when I was in there. I do remember seeing a pot paper um, written by the policy profession that was taking a long, hard look at the definition of policy and decided that there are at least 17 different buckets of skills that a good policy person should have. I think I'll just leave it there. <laughs> Um, I wanted to pick up on the point on uh, you know, the SES being there primarily to manage policy advice for ministers, and I think that's an entirely you know, accurate description of one of the kind of key parts of their roles and certainly the bit that they're most valued for. I suppose where I would link that to generalism at the moment is the question of where that policy advice is coming from and how it's being generated. And I think the real problem is if that policy advice is being solely generated by policy generalists. Um, and you're not, for instance, involving people from operational delivery who are working on the front line and so on in the creation of that policy advice. And I think we've seen numerous cases recently um, where, where that hasn't happened. So I keep talking about universal credit because it's an example I, well know, I know well. But certainly with universal credit, one of the challenges was that delivery 
um, actors had not been involved enough in crafting uh, the policy in the first place. And so I think absolutely they're there to, um, to manage policy advice, but surely one of their roles has to be um, ensuring that that policy advice is generated from a broad enough group rather than just generalists. On the what is policy, I mean, I saw exactly the same document and was about to make the same reference. Um, look, I think policy at the moment... Um, is a thing in the sense that we have, uh, you know, 80,000 people uh, working on policymaking in Whitehall. Um, I think the policy professions, you know, desire to try and bring some coherence to that and identify what do we mean, what are the skills and what are also the bits of knowledge that we think policy makers need makes sense. But I do think there would be real value in saying which bits of policymaking at the moment would be better served by putting specialists in role rather than always using generalists. If we can keep the next round of questions and answers really short, we might be able to get a final batch in after that. We've already got somebody stood at the door, somebody sat just in front of them, and then the gentleman um, a couple of rows back as well. Greg Rosen, um, New Inching Communications. Um, the critique that you've put forward is, is, is compelling, uh, and, and you've set it out very clearly. Um, much of it, of course, is not entirely new. There has been, which is not in any way to criticise. It's, it's, it's the importance of this is that this is a huge importance, but it's been a problem for decades. And people have raised it as a problem for decades. But there seems to have been a systemic unwillingness at the top of the civil service to recognise it as a problem or to want to do anything about it. How do we persuade the top of the civil service, that it is something they might want to do something about. Thank you. As uh, so the back row there. Yeah. Thank you very much. Simon Webb. I am an engineer, along with my economics. So, um, and I had a very happy 20 years in the senior civil service uh, as a generalist, but now I work for a company that does major projects. So, um, And I've got a question for Emma about... The, the, the interesting thing is, I don't think it used to be quite as general as this. And I think that about 20 years ago, the civil service caught a, a, a then fashionable bug, bug called competition. Do you remember how we used to compete, you know, rail franchises and school building and everything else? And at that point, the civil service, which used to actually direct most of, its, uh, most of the policy generalists from job to job, switched over into a competition policy. And I'd love to suggest Emma, who, who I have common currency with on doing a bit of anal analytical work, which is to say, has something odd happened because they the civil service has to compete for so many jobs at a much more junior level than they used to? Because actually there used to be a strong corpus of people who lived in... Most people lived in a department for a long time. Now they move around a lot more. So I'm just wondering whether they... Whether at the same time as we think about whether competition solves all the rest of the economy, we might think about whether it solves the civil service too. Thank you. And just two rows back as well. Yep. Uh, James Kidner from a technology startup, so a completely different world from the civil service one, but I came to it from 30-odd years in the Foreign Office. And there is a, actually a ray of light there because over the last couple of years, diplomatic service has extended postings to build expertise so that they're now normally four years, whereas previously they were only three. Um, I'm struck in my new world of technology and, and computer science that there's a much wider social issue behind, uh, underpinning all this that needs to be sort of set, sets this civil service issue in context. And that's that, that there is a general, dare I say, impatience to get onwards and upwards and outwards and through lots of different disciplines in almost every discipline there is. Even the computer scientists want to learn new things and move on to different things and won't stay at the companies where they're paid a shed load of money to stick. Um, I just want to know how you might incentivize that wider business of getting people to stay because if you're working against what I might call wider society's difficulty, it's a, it's a very difficult challenge. And just a final point, it's a fascinating discussion, but I worry that it's obscuring a much more pressing problem within the civil service, which is that rather than us not being diverse enough and all being too generalized, we're still measuring success by the size of the team that we run. You are more important if you run 20 people than if you run only 10. And that encourages waste, it encourages an obsession with your sort of scale that I think is much more destructive to the public purse. Thank you. Hand out the Greg's question um, around... So I think you said, Greg, that the senior civil service 
uh, are not recognizing the problem and not doing anything about it and have done for se several decades. I think it's very unlikely that they haven't recognized the problem. I think it's rather more likely that they're not doing anything about it. And I think they're, they're very, you know, almost every, uh, every single one, very intelligent people. They will not have missed this. But they will have risen to their position on the basis of being very good at playing a game that rewards these kind of skills. And it's quite a difficult maneuver physically to pull the rug from under your own feet, especially when you spent the last 20 years kind of reaching that position and working very hard to do so. Um, in terms of persuading them uh, to change, I think that's extremely difficult and that you need to persuade uh, people in that culture that there is a new game in town and people will be rewarded for playing it. But that's not an easy thing to do. And I think that's why we keep having basically the same kind of conversations. Um, just to sort of touch around the point um, around incentivizing people to stay and how there is generally a lot more churn, particularly in terms of those quite scarce, very precious technology skills. But more broadly, um, I think we probably have to recognize that that is the world we now live in and build our organizations and institutions around that. Um, there are certainly several parts of government who have a very strong reason to try and hold on to their staff because they've got knowledge that's pretty sensitive um, and they combine that with technological skills as well, who I know have thought very hard about how they hang on to those people. Have you seen what's happened to their attention? Right, and if they can't, they think, okay, well, how do we build a career where this is a destination within it and they acknowledge that they're going to go on to other places and how do we get them to come back? I'm always quite surprised, actually, that the civil service, in terms of its alumni, particularly its mid-career alumni, people who leave in their 30s and 40s, are sort of just off to the wind. You wouldn't really see that in any kind of serious consultancy, for example. So I think acknowledging that people are going to go on more atomised careers than maybe they once were for lots of good reasons, um, and preparing and planning for that in people's career development will be a really important thing for the civil service in years to come. Um sort of in broad society retentions, tricky tech is interesting because there's just so much demand and we've got very, we still haven't responded quickly as a society to feeding it. But there is a rootlessness, frankly, just among workers my age, a bit older, younger. And it's because really there's no expectation of loyalty from a company and especially not in tech. Anything goes wrong, you will be, you'll be let go overnight, no remorse, no switch back. And so everyone does look out for themselves in that kind of way. You know, people, most people my age rent now. Sort of a generation or two ago, it was buy. If you don't have that stability, you, change, you will take more risks, because why not? And so there's very little sense of loyalty to an employer, because you would be foolish. And there's very little sort of need not to change, because you can increase or decrease your rent or move to a new city. You know, if you have a society that makes it harder to put down roots, you can't really expect people to put down roots anyway because it would help your company. It, it's, I know you're not making... It, it does step into quite a lot of arguments. Um, you know, I think I find it quite interesting, though, to, for the public sector, how weak it is at responding to this. Um, you know, maths and science grads are in high demand from everywhere, and yet it's a controversial question whether they should be paid more in any public roles, even teaching. Um, you know, the skill set of even a fairly junior GCHQ analyst now is in demand from firms who will double or triple their salary, and they still expect them to live in Cheltenham on a fairly dreadful salary. Uh, and then they wonder why they have such a churn of GCHQ analysts. It's quite a lot of these problems are so simple and yet there's just no desire to solve it which obviously means when you come to your question on decision making capacity to do it the second you ask the senior civil service to act against its own interests on an actually hard problem I have no faith in them but of course you would be mad if you would expect senior civil servants to do themselves down and make it harder for people like them you know we are both in theory economists, um, we should look at incentives. There's no incentive for senior civil servants to do, change it. There's not really an incentive for ministers because we all know ministers don't really make any accountability decisions. So Amber Rudd managed to be the rare occasion where someone stepped down and it's because she directly misled parliament, even if it po probably wasn't her fault. Everything else, we know the minister's ostensibly responsible, but not really, so they get away with it. And we know the civil service service actually may be responsible, but there's no culture of civil servants going. So neither of them have an incentive, so that leaves you with Parliament. 
which is why we suggest things like really beefing up scrutiny and really expanding the number of civil servants who should be expected to be questioned and expected to be held accountable. Um, now, MPs have a nice reason to do that. They like grandstanding, they like scoring political points. They might be the little lever in the fulcrum. Um, but yeah, I would expect resist resistance on that. So having over-promised and under-delivered, I'm going to leave the last word to Emma <laughs> in answering it myself. So I just wanted to pick up on Simon's question about has it always been this general? And I think the answer is no in some senses, in that I think you know, 20, 25 years ago there was a model of centrally planned careers in Whitehall where rather than individuals choosing what they did, um, those careers and their moves would be planned um, from the top. I think over that period we've moved to what is essentially an individual marketplace um, in Whitehall where largely individuals decide to apply for jobs and move um, as they wish. I certainly don't think we want to go back to um, the model that we had 20 years ago of central planning, but I do wonder whether it would make sense to invest a little more in strategic talent management in Whitehall. So Whitehall really being clear department by department what skills and knowledge they need um, and trying to create career paths that correspond to that. Um, and also just thinking at a very basic level, right now there are some big challenges that we're grappling with. When we've got critical, really high quality people in roles that we want to keep them in, how do we do that? How do we make it better for them to stick with something where we need that person than to move on? Fantastic. So before everybody heads out the door for food, drink, further conversation and signed copies of Bluffocracy, um, just a few other quick things. Um, we've got lots of events coming up at the Institute over the next few weeks, but if you like this one, you might be particularly interested in a breakfast event we have on Thursday the 11th of October, where we'll be hearing from John Thompson, Permanent Secretary at Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs and the Head of the Profession for Operational Delivery. So have a look at our website and sign up to that. Um, Thank you to all of you for coming. I think it's been a great discussion. And I'd like you all to join me in thanking our fantastic panel. Thank you very much.